Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is the Tuesday edition of the show, and we're grateful to have everybody with us today. We've had some technical issues because Drew is visiting down in Florida today, and his internet has not been the most cooperative. So that's why I'm kicking off the show today. Welcome to everybody. Uh, we've got Scott joining us from Gettysburg. Hey, Scott. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing? Doing well. And we've got Jonathan, our webcast engineer, also in Gettysburg. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, how are you guys today? Doing well. And we have Drew with us today from Florida. I'm not sure how well we'll hear him or not, but hello, Drew. Hi. Yeah, the audio is coming Being through. Here. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, Jeff is not with us today. We've got a couple of interesting questions uh, on the docket. Uh, we're going to be looking at a question that has come in uh, from a viewer. And the question is, what is God's view on war? What was God's logic on having the Israelites kill every living thing in Jericho from Joshua 6.21? This verse sounds like they also killed the children. How can this be okay? This, Christ, this question comes in from Christine. So where do we want to start with this, guys, as far as looking at this, particularly, this is a question that comes up a lot in the Old Testament, uh, where there's passages where God is commanding the Israelites to go and to wipe out their enemies, man, woman, and child. Um, where would you like to start with this one? Well, why don't we confirm that, yes, that is. She said it seems like this would have been included uh, uh, children, and in First Samuel chapter uh, 13, is it, is one of the examples where that's specifically stated. Um, I'm having trouble getting the page turned to it. Somebody else gets there before me. What was that reference again, Scott? Um, no, it's not. Excuse me. I had the wrong chapter. Well, here in the case of uh, Joshua, Joshua 6 and verse 21 is the, the cited verse in the question. It says, then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Which and is so, the same pretty much as in with the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, I said 13. Uh, Do not spare them, kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox, and sheep, camel, and donkey. Right. So just to confirm, yes, that's right. That's uh, what we have recorded for us in the Old Testament is the Lord's commands were to wipe out all human life and all animal life as well um, in these instances. And one of the things that we want to go back to is just looking at the fact that God is God. And if we're going to critique the Bible, we have to look at the Bible within its own moral framework that's established from the beginning. Uh, in Genesis, God is the creator of life. Uh, he's the one who brought us all into the world. And he's the one also with the authority to take life, uh, to take us out of the world. And so that is God's decision in these cases. He's not telling people to go and on a whim kill people that they don't like. Um, he is, in his wisdom, in his judgment, telling the Israelites to execute uh, these people. And again, there's a big difference between God, the author of life saying to do that and between fallible humans, just making that decision for themselves and saying, Oh, I think we should kill off all these people. 
and doing that, which of course we've seen that happen in human history um, at, at different times where nations uh, fight against nations where a single people is selected by humans to, to be wiped out. And of course those are deplorable, terrible things. But one of the distinctions we have to be careful to make is between God's choosing of that action, which he has the authority and the wisdom to make versus fallible people making those decisions for themselves. Thoughts on that? Uh, one thing to, in, in addition to that, the distinction of that God is the giver of life and he can take it away. Uh, this also had to do with the sinfulness of those nations. Um, in Genesis fifteen sixteen, it talked about uh, the, more the timing of when they would go in because it said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And so this had to do with in the blessings and cursings, in fact, if you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the blessings and cursings, it says, if you will follow my commandments and my statutes, here are the blessings that will come to you nationally. You'll receive your reins, you'll, you know, you'll be safe from your enemies, etc. But if you do wickedly as the nations did before you, then you're going to have these calamities and your enemies will come and overtake you and take you away. And uh, the expression, you know, the land will vomit you out as it had them. And so there's this principle of the wickedness of the people that live there. Now, two things on that. One, if anybody is familiar with some of the historical details, I don't have it at my fingertips here, of what it was like in some of those uh, Canaanite uh, cultures. And, and, of course, we get a view of some of that in the Bible. And then secondly, the question of, but, but what about the children? Because they were innocent, obviously. Uh, and so uh, on those two things, what was it like in some of those uh, Philistine, Canaanite, etc. cultures? Well, we know even just from the Bible, there's a scattered passages that give us windows into uh, just the moral depravity of these different nations. Mm -hmm. um, we see it going way back with Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the moral depravity that went on in those cultures that God saw fit to then wipe out those cities, sparing, of course, the righteous in, the, in those cases lot. Uh, later on, we see some of the idolatrous practices, uh, just the terrible things with uh, the god Moloch, uh, where my, my understanding is correct. This was this iron statue that would be, there was a fire lit in or underneath it to, to right. get it hot. The child would be placed in the hands of this statue to be burnt to death essentially, or, or it would fall off the hands of the statue yeah. into the fire. In the hands of the statue or at a slope so that the, the child would slide off into the fire and they were sacrificing their children in these ways to this molech. Um, but the children themselves are innocent. But then what's going to happen to an innocent child that grows up in a culture that wicked? No, the likely nature is they will become terrible like the nation around them. Yeah. Um, and, and cultures have a, you can see it somewhat today, uh, but if you imagine over history, when a, in Romans 1, there's an expression, God gave them up. 
And it talks about when the Gentiles got into idolatry and other forms of wickedness, God gave them up to their sins. And you can get a progressive, well, actually an increasing degradation of culture to the point at which it's, it's, it's scary and harmful for a child to even be brought up in that culture. Yes. And as we think about that, we also do at times see the Lord intervening in the nations. Uh, he knows the hearts of those who can turn to him. There's people like Ruth, who is a Moabite, uh, people yep. like Rahab, who's one of the Canaanites. Of course, in Jericho, uh, she and her family are spared, even though the rest of the city is wiped out. And again, these are situations where God is the one who knows the hearts of all people. He created all people. And he is able to command, okay, these are ones that I want to be killed. And these are ones that will be spared. And that's not... And Rahab, I'm sorry. And Rahab is spared. She turns to God and she is spared. And you have, through, throughout the law, you'll have some references to, and the sojourner who dwells with you, or and the strangers who are there, and, and such. And so there were people, and there were rules about how to treat uh, you know, various people. Um, and so there were people that came in from other places. Uh, in fact, well, famous story of David's sin uh, with Bathsheba. You recall the the good and faithful man that he had killed, Uriah, was a... A Hittite. Yeah, yeah. And so Uriah, there were... Uriah the chose, Hittite. Sorry. Yeah, there were people that chose, and those people were... were um, uh, various provisions for them to be... Uh, cared for and such and respected when they came over and, and turned towards God. Yeah, that's right. And one other thing that we want to talk about with this is just the perspective of eternity, that uh, from a, this side of life perspective, death is the end, but biblically, death is not the end. And there are rewards and punishments beyond this life. And for those who are young, uh, too young to know their right hand from their left, too young to sin, commit uh, you know, a crime against God, then th- they would be taken to eternal life when they die, uh, whether if they're killed or they die of other causes. Uh, and I think that does help us as we think about this question of especially children being killed, which is part of our viewers' question today is that these children are not being sentenced to God's judgment as far as an eternal punishment, but they would be taken into eternal life from everything we can tell from the scriptures. And that's a very different picture than just a one-time judgment and now they're, they're gone forever. Um, and uh, the eternal life that they go to is, of course, a much better alternative than being raised in the pagan culture that they would have been being brought up in drew and then jonathan yeah i don't know if my audio is going to come in clear but what about when uh innocent children are killed in a catastrophe such as an earthquake or a tornado do the same individuals that have a problem with men of war in the old testament taking innocent children's lives would they also have the same problem with uh, such as natural catastrophes doing it Many times, yes. In fact, one of the biggest objections that you will hear on an emotional level against the existence of God is how could a good God allow suffering? So whether it's a wildfire, uh, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a tornado, and you have 
people dying and, and children dying, uh, that's one thing that a lot of people will turn away from the idea of God because their idea of God is somebody that's supposed to make good things happen for you. And so if bad things happen for you and the child, of course, hadn't done anything bad, how could a good God allow that to happen? So the, uh, there's a lot of people who philosophically would have the uh, a problem with that as well. And we can talk about that in a minute. Um, Jonathan. Yeah, and, and also that, that idea of God um, thinking of how could God kill children or have children killed. Um, a lot of times you go to that, those verses like in, in Joshua 6 where the entire nation is devoted to destruction. You see that with Jericho. You see that with, with the Amorites. Um, you see that with the, the Amalekites uh, in First Samuel. But then there's uh, a verse in Jonah. The book of Jonah is really interesting. Um, whenever Jonah goes and he prophesies to the Assyrians, who, my understanding, the Assyrians were kind of the worst of the worst um, of their time and really throughout all of the world's history and how they treated other nations and their, their pagan uh, practices. But at the end of the book of Jonah in chapter four, God seems to be trying to teach Jonah a lesson. And the very last verse is a question that God has for Jonah. And God speaking in Jonah four verse 11 says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So the, the thought process, how I understand that is God is describing children, those who are innocent. And so God is not a God who is out to destroy every single nation and every single creature that's in all these evil nations. God in this evil nation with Assyria talking to Nineveh, he wants to show pity. He wants to show compassion and he relents in the book of Jonah um, from, from doing that. And so the idea of the thought that God is consistently and constantly throughout the old Testament, destroying all of these nations and all of their children um, is an incorrect view. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and even in the Bible, this isn't uh, an all the time kind of thing. There's a few pockets where Israel is commanded to destroy certain peoples or peoples in a certain area. Uh, but people want to paint the God of the Old Testament as this whimsical, angry, uh, random God who just is mad at everybody, sometimes his own people, sometimes foreign people, and just has these outbursts of wrath. And we just don't see that with a careful reading of the Old Testament. Uh, Scott brought up the iniquity of the Amorites not being complete earlier. Uh, God's judgment is always just. We don't always have the full picture. But the, the picture, the biblical picture of God, even in the Old Testament, is not of a whimsical uh, God of wrath alone. He is a God of wrath, but he is a God of compassion, a God of mercy, and a just judge. And when we look again at the biblical picture of humanity, we're all sinful. Uh, we all are worthy of God's wrath and God's judgment. Uh, any act of mercy that he gives us is, is mercy, <laughs> And again, we have to take that into account as we think about questioning the morality of God. Is God being just? Is God being fair? Um, which really leads us into another philosophical question in this whole thing is if someone is going to say, well, this God is a moral monster, according to who? It, 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 you're left with the question of, all right, if I'm going to reject that there is a higher being that gives us a moral framework, on what basis, on what objective basis am I going to call this God's morality into question and say, 
that's wrong. That's evil. Well, says who? Well, wouldn't they say today that uh, it's relative? And if, if someone then wants to say that morality or truth is relative, then how can they even judge other people doing things on a national scale that today we may call immoral, but they weren't calling it immoral? So who's going to judge that? Without God, it's anybody's or society's choice to de- describe what is moral. I think that, is that where you're going with this, dude? Yeah, that's the thing is, is in, in our culture of moral relativism, people want to malign God's morality, but on the basis of what? You know? uh, by the way, Jeff uh, has joined us now and uh, is here. Jeff, I don't know if you have any thoughts to offer on, uh, on this part of the conversation. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I came in late and I'll tell you why I came in late. I got confused between the Wednesday and the Tuesday webcast and I was thinking we didn't start till three. Oh, <laughs> so you're early. It's so on early. Suddenly dawned on me. Nearly so, a day early. You got to remember I, tu- Tuesday at, at two. I, 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 <laughs> Eastern time, that is. At two. That's going to be on, on Wednesday at WED. Wednesday. <laughs> right, I got it now. But I may, and so I may not know what all has been covered in this discussion, but I, I know what we're talking about. We're talking about the examples of genocide, what we would call genocide in the Old Testament, even women and children being killed, and people want to say, well, how, I can't believe in a God who would do something like that. And it almost becomes an excuse. In fact, at times it is an excuse to then dismiss the Bible. One of the questions I, I, I want to ask, just whether it's been discussed or not, have we talked about the fact that for a child who is growing up in a pagan culture, uh, for that child to come to maturity in that culture likely means, not necessarily, but likely means that child is going to be the benefit, or not the benefit, but is going to receive, is going to have the result of all of that evil influence and is more likely to end up in a state of condemnation, whereas the child that uh, is, his life is taken at a young age, in the next life, that child having died at a young age uh, could be with God eternally. And so in, in reality, those children that may have been killed in God's judgment, he could have seen fit to do them a favor, so to speak. Has that been discussed yet? Not exactly that. We talked about the moral depravity of these pagan nations, um, but as far as the perspective of God taking the life of those children before they have the chance to become uh, wicked and incur judgment. Now, this doesn't mean, well, we should go kill all the children then before they grow up. But God is the one who has the ability to make those kinds of judgments. But I think that it's rather short-sighted of us to sit in judgment of God's righteousness when he's looking at the eternal picture and we're not. And in his perspective on the eternal picture, he can make that judgment and do something that maybe temporarily to us seems horrific and yet eternally is, is better for all concerned. Yes, that's right. And again, we keep coming back to this idea that's so important is that God is the creator. It is his prerogative to deal with his creation as he sees fit. That is the biblical framework that we're working from. And people want to enter into that framework and then say, well, what about this, 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 this from their perspective and call God's judgment into question. And we simply do not have all the information, the perspective, uh, the wisdom to be able to make some of these calls as we see God making. And and, and if we could do this too, I think I heard a a bit ago, the contrast between 
uh, men of war taking lives of innocent children as opposed to children dying in a natural disaster. And just to be clear, we're not saying that it's all right when children die if it's in war that men of war take their lives. That's not the point. The point is God has the right to, to act and to take, take life or to let men live. And God is going to hold all men accountable, and, and we'll get to that maybe in a few minutes. But, uh, you know, when the Israelites went to war, um, it, on the one hand, it, it's, people are put off by the fact that it was the command of God, and yet that's the very key. It's not justifying war and just going out and killing. You know, some of you, Drew, Scott, are old enough to re- remember the My Lai Massacre, right? It, 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 that's, that's, that's not justified at all for man to go and, and kill women and children or anybody. But when God decides to do it, that's God's will. And if God uses human beings as his tools to do that, if he used the Israelites in the Old Testament to do that, gave them specific instructions and, and said to do that, then we're talking about the God who is going to hold all of us accountable and can rightly snuff out all of our lives. He's doing that. Did you all happen to go back to Deuteronomy 20? We haven't gone there specifically. Did you go to any passages where it talks about the instructions God gave to Israel? Yes. Okay. Yes, we did. Right. So, so in other words, the point's been made. It's not just that the Israelites were allowed to go willy-nilly killing anybody they wanted to. They were given instructions by God, and so it really was an act of God. And, and, and well, if it's God, that's, that's his prerogative. Yeah, Scott? I'd like us to touch on two more points and then move on to another question because we've got a lot of questions on the docket, I believe. Uh, real briefly, um, I'd like us to – Noah, hold that, unless we get a question. Ooh, you said uh, Noah – you said Noah, hold that. Noah is the other thing I wanted to bring in here. <laughs> okay, go ahead with Noah. Well, Noah, uh, God destroyed all of mankind in the days of the flood. Yes. It's kind of interesting that – people who consider themselves believers to some extent stumble over God having a city destroyed, but don't stumble over God having all mankind destroyed. Go ahead, Drew. Well, uh, Scott, uh, Jeff, you were saying something to them. Maybe think about it. When, when God ordered the Israelites to bring out his, execute his commands in war, he used whatever means he can that he wants to rather to carry out his, his wrath, his desire to punish evil. But don't we see that when he even used Babylon to carry out his justice upon Israel, didn't yes. he also get angry with them because they went too far? Well, not even because they went too far, but just because they, they did it. Um, in Israel's case, God commanded them, and he told them what cities to utterly destroy people and what cities to offer terms of peace to in Deuteronomy, the 20th chapter. And so they were not wrong in doing that. They were, they were right in doing that. But when we talk about the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming in judgment against Israel and Judah, respectively, it's not just that they went too far. In, in Isaiah, the 10th chapter, as it describes the, Babylon, the Assyrians coming against Israel, it begins with the word, woe. Woe to Assyria, the uh, rod in whose hand is my indignation, the wrath of my anger, and I'm not quoting that quite right. But from the get-go, he's saying, Assyria, you're going to be in trouble. First, I'm going to use you to punish Israel, and, and then you're going to be punished. They weren't doing it because God gave them a command, said, you go do it. They were of 
the nature. They were want to do that, and God allowed it and used them and then held them accountable. But, but to your point, um, that what that means is just because somebody goes to war and God uses them doesn't exonerate them. Jonathan. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm fairly certain that what you were talking about, Jeff, as far as a, a nation acting out without the direction of God, um, that's what Edom did to Israel when they were being taken into captivity um, by the Assyrians. Um, yes. And so you have, uh, I believe, in uh, Ezekiel 35, oh, okay. um, there's there's the prophecy against Edom. And the language that God uses in Ezekiel 35, clearly God doesn't approve of just nations going and killing other nations. Um, he says um, in uh, Ezekiel 35, uh, in verse 3, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities to waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know I am the Lord, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, Mm -hmm. at the time of their final punishment. And so what you have there is Israel is being judged by Assyria according to God's will, and Edom sees an opportunity to go in kind of make it worse and get their, get their part of it. And God is not, not, not pleased with that. And to not to, unless I'm mistaken, I think that this is referring to when the Babylonians came against Judah, but nonetheless, the, the point, I think you're, you're exactly right in what you're saying. Scott, um, you had something you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to go back and touch on the thing that I started not to, and it's off of this question and just on suffering in general. So if you've got your Bibles turned to Romans eight, we're going to read a couple of verses there. And then in a minute, uh, I think let's move on to another topic. But before we read the Romans 8 passage, which is about suffering in general, I want to say one thing about war. And that is, don't make the mistake of looking at the old covenant where you have a theocracy. One particular nation that God has chosen, you will be my people, and I'm going to use you to destroy these wicked nations, and I'm going to give you the land that flows with milk and honey, But if you become wicked, I'm going to let other nations take you out. To look at his record and the military actions there and assume that that's what we're to do uh, makes a fundamental mistake. And let me illustrate it two ways real quickly. Number one, uh, was it good for Goliath to be working for the Philistine army? No. We thought so. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if we say, well, there was war in the Old Testament, so we should go to war today. Well, should Goliath have gone to war? No. He's not disobeying King Saul. He's obeying, you know, his Philistine king. and make him right. This is a belt buckle uh, from between World War I and World War II. Back it up just a little bit. Okay. Yeah, we got it. That's good. This is a German belt buckle, and at the top it says, as an eagle, and it says, Gott mit uns. God with us. God with us. I've got it, and this is a rather rare one because it didn't have as big a military in between the wars. I've got another one, picked these up when I lived over in uh, occupied area of Prague. Uh, but uh, the other one, it still says, Gott mit uns, after World War II starts, and there's a swastika right here. Hmm. So you got the Nazis in charge, you got the swastika there, and, but their belt buckles still said, got mittens. Mm-hmm. None of us should presume today to be our nation is God's chosen people parallel to the old covenant. 
God's people or those who are his people, whether they're Canadians, whether they're French, whether they're uh, in Uganda, whether they're wherever they are. God's and and, and God. this is part of the problem of our society in the United States of America. Too many believers have come to think of the United States as something equivalent to the Old Testament nation of Israel, as God's chosen people. And therefore, if the United States goes to war, it's okay. But if somebody else goes to war against us, well, then they're wrong and we're right. And And, that's the mistake. And it's okay to appreciate God's blessings. Absolutely. And saying God bless America. God bless America doesn't mean God destroy Canada. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it's not the same. All right. The other thing, let's go now to Romans 8. Oh, Steve. Steve, uh, Steve is going to make a great segue, I think. Uh, right. No, I've actually got one more thing to add to just this whole question. Right. Real quick. As far as we're talking about our morally relativistic culture, one of the things that happens is when we put God under the microscope and say, oh, this can't be right. And then we say, well, well from our perspective, this is wrong and this is right. One of the great terrible things that's happening today is that people are sitting as moral judges over what constitutes life and what does not in particular yes. in the matter of abortion. Yes. And to say, well, God killing those kids in the old Testament, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. But to have God. a medical doctor reach into a yes. woman and tear an infant a, a yes. limb from limb. That's Okay. We are in a terrible state when we pass judgment on God's rules and then set up our own rules, and we are reaping what we've sown with that. It's terrible. And some of those Canaanites whom God had destroyed utterly were people who sacrificed children, and we get upset with God for destroying them, and then we do the very thing they were doing, destroying children. So one of the things earlier, Drew, you had talked about something that got us on on the, or maybe Stephen, you had this idea of people today viewing what morals are you going to come from? The moral that a lot of people come from is this, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And there's a couple things wrong with that. One, these same people will, uh, defenders of abortion will often have that rule. You shouldn't be against that. That's consenting adults. It's not hurting anybody. It's what it's not hurting by anybody. And what they've done is they've defined the baby as not anybody, you know, so they can keep kind of consistent. But, and, and I would, I would encourage you to do this. Uh, Google, there's a YouTube, Ben Shapiro shreds, uh, abortion argument. And it's really, it's very short, really interesting, a dialogue between a person opposed to abortion and a person in favor of abortion and on this idea of, is it a person? Uh, but that's one thing they do. But another thing is this, they pretend that all the immorality and ungodliness going on is not hurting people. It is, you know, our country is having increasingly more psychiatric and mental health problems. You'll just see every so often in the news, just just a higher percentage of people that are now just messed up that are, that are, you know, have problems that previous generations just didn't have in these same levels. And there's so much sin in this country and so much perversity that's approved of and celebrated, but it is damaging. Pornography is damaging. It, you know, the people that say, oh, 
you shouldn't do that because that hurts somebody, but this doesn't hurt anybody. People are underestimating what is hurting people. There's a lot of corruption hurting people. Drew. Uh, Jeff, you were talking earlier, I think you were talking about the, the morality that some people were taking about how DNA editing yeah. is immoral. Can you expound upon that? Well, I won't chase this rabbit too far, but just there was a story this morning on the CBS News program about a, a doctor in China who has uh, created quite an uproar in the scientific community because he has edited the DNA of two little, em two embryos that, that are twin girls um, so that they would be immune to HIV <clears throat> and planted them back into the mother. And I think now they've been born and named, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, and there's a, an uproar and the terms being used this morning by the reporters and by people being quoted who are in the scientific community was this is immoral, this is unethical. Um, and of course, what they're thinking is, well, this is, uh, we don't really know all the implications of this edit. There might be some unforeseen uh, consequences. And also, you have changed the human race because they said what has happened now is these two little girls will grow up and they will have children. They will pass on this edited DNA. And so now future generations will have their DNA edited. And so this, they said, this is immoral and unethical. And I mean, they were really in an uproar about it. The woman who was reporting this on the CBS news program this morning, she seemed angry. And, uh, and, and yeah, I was sitting there watching this and wait a minute, this kind of goes back to the point Stephen was making. Uh, we're going to sit here and talk about what is moral and what is ethical at the same time, say we don't believe in a God and we certainly think that abortion is okay. Hey, if this is such a, a huge, uh, horrible thing that this doctor's done, why not just kill those two little girls and, you know, say done with it? And well, well, that, especially if we could have killed them before they were born, that would just be abortion. And that's supposedly moral. But somehow, I'm not here to defend gene editing. I don't know enough about DNA and gene editing to comment on whether that's a wise thing to do or not. But it just struck me that there's no basis for objecting to this on the part of people who do not believe in a God who has made us and defined morality for us, there's no basis for objecting to this on the part of people who are pro-abortion. Jonathan. And um, I, I thought it was interesting. This is an interesting thing that happened to me as far as it goes to defining your own morality outside of God. Uh, I was speaking with a guy who said that he, uh, he practiced uh, He was a, a Wiccan which I believe is some form of, of right. witchcraft. And um, as far as I understood how he was describing it, um, I actually just looked it up to make sure that, that I was right. They really have kind of one rule. And their rule is if you don't harm anyone, you can do what you will. It's, it's stated in right. English, but it's, and ye harm none, do what you will. Right. And it was interesting when I was talking to this guy, that was his perspective. As long as I don't hurt anyone, anything is fine. But he mentioned to me, um, that's him defining his own morality outside of God. He mentioned to me that someone earlier in the day had broken into his car. And he, the way that he said it was, I need to find this guy so that I can like punish him. Um, and I don't remember exactly what he said. And I asked him, so I thought according to your religion, you're not allowed to harm anyone. Yeah. And he said, well, he harmed me. So now I have to harm him. And I said, okay, so now you're redefining your morality again based on what is, what is uh, acceptable for you. And that's just uh, an example, very practical. Just a few weeks ago, 
of someone, I mean, when you have, when you don't have the objective morality of God and try to make your own, it's always subjective to whatever happens to you. And that doesn't do anything for anyone. Let's read on. So so stepping away from this question, going back to the, just the suffering in general that was brought up, like when children die and earthquakes or different. I want to read this text from scripture. This is Romans chapter eight, verse 18 through 21. And there's a couple of important things here. First off, verse 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to usward. So this life is going to have, you know, if you live an ungodly life, you're going to suffer. If you live a godly life, you're going to suffer. Uh, We suffer from bad actions of our own. We suffer from bad actions of other people. We suffer from sin and death and a result of living in this fallen world. Uh, but you're going to suffer. If you live ungodly, you're going to suffer a lot from your sins. If you live righteously, you're going to suffer from persecution. Uh, but suffering is part of life. But Paul says the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory afterwards revealed. Then verse 20 says this. Creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption to the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Now, if you break that down, it gets a lot easier. So let's go. The creation was subjected to vanity. Uh, Think of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. And he's one of the big things that's bothering him is that Life here didn't bring ultimate pleasure, and after you did all this, you're just going to die. So when was creation subjected to vanity? At the fall. Yeah, Genesis 3. All right, let's move on. Creation subjected to vanity, not of its own will. Did Adam and Eve say, hey, we would like sin and death. We would like to be cast out of the garden. We we would like painted. No. So... Creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it. Who subjected them to the curses? God did. God. Why would he do that? Read the verse. The creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it in what? In hope. In hope that the creation itself also should be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty and the glory of the children of God. When everything is going our way and there is no suffering in the world, you know, we can be pretty self-centered and arrogant, even in a world of vanities. But if we were never suffering, if we never got cold, if we never got old, if we never, you know, food never got mold, if everything's just going great for us, can you imagine how much people would neglect God? But when a tornado comes through, what do a lot of people start doing that they haven't done in months? They turn to God. Yeah. Now, a lot of them stop as soon as the tornado, you know, uh, took out the town next to them instead of theirs. Right. But the thing is, there are people that learn from suffering. And a great example of it is the story of the prodigal son. Uh, When he's got all the money and he goes away in riotous living, is he changing his heart? When does he come to himself and realize that he should want to be a servant of his father, which parallels us needing to go back to serve our our heavenly father? When he's in dire straits, when he's just about lost everything. 
Yes. Yes. A famine is hit. He's out of money. He's feeding pigs. He's wishing he could have the pig food and nobody gave him anything. He came to himself. Mm -hmm. And so there are, there are benefits in, so this is not about the, uh, the original question, but as you brought up, Drew, just the general thing about what about suffering in general, there are purposes in suffering. And one of the lessons is for us not to focus just on this life here. Good. Do we have time to move to another question? No. Three and a half minutes. (laughs) We can save it for next week. We we can introduce it or we can do what, do what you will. Tell us what to do here. We've got, yeah. Well, what is the next question? Let's see if we can hit it real quick. The visitation. uh, What what is meant by uh, the the day of visitation? Do you have that up there? I bet we can hit that in three and a half minutes. Somebody address that. Well, First Peter chapter 2, this is a question that came into my email this morning. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your behavior seemly or proper behavior among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so the question was, is Peter referring to the final judgment when it mentions the day of visitation, or is this the day when the Gentiles, these Gentiles hear the gospel? And the questioner mentions Luke 19, 44, where Jesus references the time of your visitation in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, if you like, in three minutes, if I can assign each of you a passage to read, maybe we can do something real quickly here. Go for it. All right, if somebody could, how about, uh, Scott, if you would get Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. All right. Uh, uh, Stephen, if you'd get Job chapter 10, verse 12. And uh, so also, uh, Drew, if you'd get uh, Job 29, 4. And Jonathan, if you would get Isaiah 10, verse 3. Uh, let's get those three passages. Let me introduce them with this. The word translated visitation here is episcope and you may recognize that as being similar to the word episcopus which is the word for overseer um, or bishop and an overseer has the job of watching over and not just watching over like sitting back going oh wow i see that happening and i see that happening but watching over with the idea that he will direct warn when somebody's doing something wrong encourage when somebody's doing something right that sort of thing this word episcope, well, it comes from two words, epi and scop the, is the root of the next word. Epi is over and scop, like telescope, microscope, so on, something that has to do with seeing. All right, so let's see. Who has Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24 and 25? Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. And there you have this word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word used is episkope, the same word used in 1 Peter 2.12. And obviously, it's God having an oversight of the people in the sense of watching out, taking care of them, providing for what they need. Let's go to Job 10, verse 12. Who's got that? I've got that one. Job 10, verse 12. This is the ESV. says, you have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. 
Now, the old King James says, thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. Yeah, care gets the idea here, but the Greek translation here is, is this, and I'm just translating from the Greek straight into English. It says, and the oversight of you will gar- has guarded me, my spirit. And so the care here, I'm not saying this means care, but where the Hebrew texts talk about care or visitation, the Greek text use this word episcope, visitation. And then how about the one in Job 29, verse 4? Yeah, I have the ESV. It says, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. All right, and so what it says in the Greek translation is said it says when God oversaw uh, when the oversight of God made my house. Uh, now we're out of time, but the idea here is you can have oversight. You can have oversight watching over something with a positive intent, or or oversight that says, "Hey, this is wrong. I've got to come down and deal with this." And so let's go to Luke nineteen forty four and actually back up in the context. And let's look at Luke 19, uh, 43 and 44. Uh, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming. And he says in 43 and 44, For the day shall come upon you when your enemies shall cast up a bank about you, encompass you around, and keep you on every side. That's the picture of laying a siege to a city, an army laying a siege to a city. And shall dash you to the ground and your children within you. And they shall not leave in you one stone upon another, because you knew not the time of your, and then we have this word, the American standard says visitation, or it could be your oversight. You don't, and here obviously the oversight would mean the occasion upon which you are held accountable, God overseeing you. One more passage before we get back to First Peter. Go to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3. Who had that? Uh, yeah, I had that. Uh, flipped away from it. <clears throat> from the ESV, it says, uh, "What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee?" Right there, that, where it says "day of punishment," the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word "day of oversight." So now, what we see is this idea of someone overseeing something. The word "oversight" can be used in a context where it's talking about not just that all of the oversight, but the time at which that oversight comes to a culmination and there's some accountability for what's been going on. And this language, the day of your oversight, sounds like the language that's used in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, rather than it just being the all the... God is, is providing oversight in the sense of always watching over mankind and providing man opportunity to hear the truth and so on all the time. But there's a particular time of oversight and accountability that's going to come. We, yeah. we should talk about some time, we're out of time this week, but we should talk about sometime the fact that there is a day of visitation, a day of oversight coming. I think too many people have lost sight of the fact that not only is there a God, but there's a God who is going to hold us accountable. There's a day coming. I'll be judgment on that. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank you. We'll see you all next week.